Welcome to the Volrath Feed, where we talk about anything and everything in the food service industry. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And as always, our producer, Justin Pearson, is with us today. Justin, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing quite well today. So I'm excited today. We have a, a guest on our show. I do some research here. And um, as always, you know, you, you start doing the research and kind of get a feel for for the guest and I think we're gonna have a great show today. We have uh, Yia Vang with us today. He's the chef and founder of the Union Mung Kitchen in Minneapolis. And uh, he's doing that right now, it's a it's a pop-up, but I, he's got a Kickstarter that he's recently completed and he's opening his restaurant, I think later this year, uh, V9. And we'll hear about that, I'm sure, here on the show. We'll be interested to hear what he's got planned for that. but. He's been in a lot of publications. He's he's all over the internet, New York Times, CNN, and I guess pretty recently here in the Bon Appetit uh, April issue, I think, of Bon Appetit magazine he was featured in. So He's everywhere, so yeah. it's really exciting to have him on the show here. That it is. You know, and Hmong, Hmong culture is, is unique, and I think, you know, I've lived in Wisconsin most of my life, and it's we have a large population of Hmong here in the Midwest, and I know you spend some time out west more mm. in the Western United States. And did you hear about Hmong culture that in that area of the country? I know you grew up here in Wisconsin, or how'd that work again? Well, I moved to Wisconsin uh, when I was in ninth grade from Idaho. And it was my first exposure to Hmong culture, Hmong people. And out West didn't even know it was a thing. Um, <clears throat> so it was, it was completely brand new to me. And there was, there was a lot to learn there. Because you know, you're told, oh, they're from Vietnam, oh, they're from Laos, oh, they're from China, oh, they're from Thailand, and and it was confusing for for a kid, you know, and to to try and grasp the concept of a people without a country, more or less. So right, right. No, I was I was pretty young when when all that was happening, and I remember the churches in this area would sponsor families to come over, and I think that's. That's how a lot of Hmong made it to the United States in the churches. They, they sponsored them to come out of the refugee camps. And like you said, they, they didn't have a country. And um, my mom's been in business now 40 years. And um, one of her very first employees came right from, uh, I think she's from Laos. And, uh, well, excuse me, her family still lives in Laos. But uh, just a really good worker, good person. She's been there now 41 years. Wow. With my mom, right? And uh, just always just been a really good person. It's kind of funny. You, you watch her progression from not understanding any of the language to picking some of it up to now, well, she knows quite a bit. And I won't go into the details of what she knows, but if uh, if she's upset, you know it. <laughs> but, uh, I suppose great. in the kitchen, you might pick up a little bit of a language. That, oh, right. You know, the uh, delivery a little guys. bit salty. Yeah, right. The delivery guys would come in and, and, you know, they would talk to somebody else and uh, they'd crack a joke or something and you'd look over at her and she'd just have a little smirk on her face. She understood it and she laughed, but she, you know, just kept to herself a little bit. So, <laughs> but uh, great, great lady. And um, as I say, 40-year employee, you don't see a lot of that. No. She's been a really good one. Yeah, No, you really don't see that much anymore. But, you know, Rich... I just can't hardly wait for Yia's restaurant to open up because as soon as it does, I know my wife and I are going to be heading up there after checking out the photos and the videos. The stuff he's cranking out just looks outstanding. I just know we're going to say 
you know, road trip again in this episode. Mm -hmm. I just have a feeling it's, it's one of those places that I think you and I both would appreciate this type of food and Mm -hmm. just, uh, yeah, kind of guy. It sounds like, and, and, um, I love Hmong food and and with his new restaurant opening in Minneapolis, it's certainly within a reach of a day trip for us to, uh, head up that way and do the show on the road. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. This is one I definitely, you know, I'm all in on this one. Right, and then on our way home, we got to stop in Viroqua, Yeah, right. We just got to do a loop. We do. You know? We have and to. Then, then we'll see catch a ferry, head over to Detroit. You know, yeah, hit up Sister Pie. Absolutely, we got to. Well, it's it's officially <laughs> summertime now, you know. So it's we we got to travel. We got to just got to stop talking and start doing. Right. All right. So we take those trips. We'll get out on the road and. Uh, I think now we got to bring it back. So let's bring in Chef Yia Vang and hear about his restaurant, his food philosophy, and what's influenced him in his life so far. Chef Vang, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for having me, uh, guys. I've uh, been really uh, enjoying some of the products that we've been using from uh, Wolraf, and so I'm really excited to just get here and talk to you guys. Oh, super to hear that. Yeah, I know you've, you've been using some induction ranges, I think you talked about, and... Yeah, it's it's awesome. I actually leave it in my car. It's like <laughs> I still keep the um, I still keep it in like in the box with the little styrofoam stuff on it, and I, I pull it out. Uh, yeah, I, I just leave it in my car. It's like it's weird. My girlfriend always asks me, "Well, what is that box?" I'm like, "Shh, quiet. The, you don't need to know." So, yeah. You never know where the Buckle opportunity is going to come up. Tight, you know? <laughs> yeah, it it just it's so nice. We've used it for all our pop ups. I mean, I take it everywhere with me. Um, yeah, and even when we go to my fr- like to friends' houses, and if they have a really cruddy you know uh range and i'm like ah i'll be right back <laughs> so, <laughs> let, me, yeah. let me take care of that right. yeah yeah chef when when we bring chefs on the show i think one of the things that people always like to hear about is you know when did it hit you when did you think that's what i want to do that's what i want to be or that's something all, people always are interested in so when did that happen for you yeah for, for me I, I don't know if i have a, a different story but for, for me it's more of a uh, I, I've been trying to get out of it my whole life. Um, it, it's, you know, I've, I've told people this many times. It's like, um, it's like that ex-girlfriend you keep breaking up with, but you keep getting back together and you go do it all through high school. And then you do it all through college. <clears throat> and then when you're out of college, you still keep doing it. And it's 15 years into it. You're like, what are we doing? You know? And then you're like, you know, might as well put a ring on it, you know? And you, 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 you learn to re-fall in love with her again. And that's what I, that's why I tell people my, uh, since high school and, uh, and, and college, I've been, you know, every year, every summer was like, this is the last year I'm working at this restaurant, or this is the last time I'm ever going to be in a kitchen, you know, a restaurant kitchen. And, you know, somehow I always get dragged back, you know. That's food service, isn't it, though? I mean, you hear so <laughs> many people. Really? I mean, we, once you're in it, that's it. It's somehow it's it's always in you, right? Yeah. And it's just like. And, and when you do go back, you're kind of like, again, it's like those kind of weird relationships where you're like, <laughs> just just for a little bit, just to see how it goes, you know, yep. where it's like, for me, it was always like, oh, like the summer, like in college, like the summer cash grab, 12 bucks an hour, you know what I'm saying? Like, I could just do this for the summer, 12 bucks an hour, I'll be done, you know, and uh, yeah, I've been trying to get out of it. I think that the reason why cooking uh, for me was really hard to just like gel with is i found out that i am a very I, i'm one of those people that like everything in life i want it all to connect 
I want it to make sense. And for me, everything else is connecting about the whole idea of cooking. I'm like, why the restaurant life? I mean, you know, you guys get it. It's, yep. it's crazy. You work, basically you work second shift when you're working, your friends are all playing. And when they're playing, you're like catching up on sleep, you know, and, <laughs> very different. And, you're right. So, yeah. And, and then your friends become the guys that you work with. And some of those guys aren't the funnest to hang out with at times, you know? You know? Well, they like to have too much fun. That's another <laughs> yeah. problem sometimes, yeah. right? Definitely. And so I, I struggled with that a lot because, um, you know, my buddies in college, they were all like, hey, man, let's hang out Friday night. I'm like, what do you think I'm doing Friday night, guys? Like, I'm working. And so so I really – I just felt like it didn't match well with the way – the where I want the, tra- the trajectory of life of what I wanted to do. And, and so I ended up um, – the only job I could find after college was uh, running this, uh, managing this big catering uh, group, you know, and managing this small little place for them. And I was just like, oh, this, and again, in my mind, I was like, this is just, you know, for a few months to make some money, pay some bills off, and then I'll be done. Um, and then I guess for me, when I like re fell in love with cooking was, I was actually, um, uh, a cook i was actually like that kitchen coordinator for this really big church it's like four thousand person church so you run the kitchen program and I, and I was just doing that and and uh when i realized that food wasn't just sustenance it was a um it was this food was had this ability to to gather people together to draw people together that you know what we always say uh at our restaurant is that every dish has a narrative. You follow that narrative long enough and close enough, you get to the people behind the food. And once you're there, it's really not about the food, it's about the people. And that the food that we make wasn't because we were trying to win awards or whatever, we were actually trying to talk to people. It's a universal language. And that for me, I, I, I re-fell in love. I saw food in a different light. And once that, was, that happened probably like eight years ago, I was hooked. I was like, man, this is it. Like, this is what yeah. I wanna do. Yeah. Oh, that's great. No, I, my dad was the same way. He always said it wasn't about the money. He just wanted people to enjoy his restaurant and enjoy being oh. there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's to him was, was really what it was about. Mm-hmm. So your childhood, did you do a lot of cooking when you were young? That's yeah. where you got interested in some of it? Yeah. So, so my nationality is Hmong. So growing up as a Hmong kid, um, uh, it was one of those things where my father, my father's a very practical man. He's like, if we're going to sign you up for baseball or whatever, like you better be the best baseball player in the world. And I'm like, I don't know, I'm not that good. You know? So my, my dad believed in teaching us practical skills, you know, like while most kids on Saturday morning were going out playing pay- baseball, playing soccer, joining some kind of league or whatever. My father had us go with him to the farm and butcher animals. So we would like get like chickens, cows, pig. And I remember being like 10 or 11 years old and he gave, he gave me a boning knife and they gave, and it was all these primal cuts of different kind, you know, like either that week it would either be a cow or a pig. And he would just show me where all the tendons were and where all the cuts were. And he's like, you cut it right here. You cut right there. You know, this, this part falls off. And so I thought that was normal growing up. I'm like, yeah, every kid does this. Right. So it wasn't until I got to college that uh, I remember breaking down chicken uh, for someone we were, you know, cooking and my roommates in the college, we we're in my um, apartment. I was breaking down a chicken and there was a girl that was uh, visiting and she's standing there. She goes, that is the most amazing thing. Like I never knew that's where like chicken breast, the meat came from. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, don't you guys all know this stuff? They're like, no, like, you know, and so I jokingly told people, I can't, I can't throw a curveball, but 
I could break down a chicken, you know? <laughs> I was more comfortable holding a, a knife and holding, like, you know, saws and, you know, breaking down big animal than I was more comfortable holding a baseball growing up. So that, to me, I thought it was weird. But actually, as you, know, you get older, you know, people are just like, wow, like, you, you just, like, you knew how to break that down. I'm like, yeah, like, you know, might, you know, might not know how to ride a bike, but that's what I know how to do. <laughs> You find that to this day, a lot of people to break down a chicken, something that simple, it just seems like magical to some people yet, right? I think it's interesting that I have friends who are still blown away by me teaching them how to spatchcock a chicken. They're like, I never knew you could do that. I'm like, yeah, it's not that hard. I mean, it's a spine. You take the spine out and, you know, or just even like breaking down whole animals. Like I, I told, I told a friend, I said once like any four legged creature, the anatomy is pretty much the same. Once you know how to break one down, it's pretty much like you transfer the concept to the next. And he's just like, he looks at me because we were talking about uh, breaking down a deer, a whole deer. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, you know, the same thing if you think about it from a, you know, cow's point of view or from a, you know, from a pig's point of view. And he's just sat there and he's like, I never knew that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I went on veterinarian sites. That's how I kind of learned. It's like weird, but I, I went on veterinarian sites and animal anatomy parts and on vet sites, you know. Yeah, no, you're right. It is very much the same. Once you yeah. understand where it is on a cow, it's yeah. kind of the same on a pig or whatever, right? Yeah, same. So, is is the breaking down process similar from what you learned as a child to it is uh, how it's been done traditionally in the U.S.? Is it kind of the same process? Do you get similar cuts, or is it something yeah, completely you know, different? Yeah, it's it's a little different. I think for for a lot of Hmong families, and I, I speak only for the Hmong families. I don't know how other families do sure. of, of of other cultures. But I know for a monk family, like when, you, when you're breaking down, um, like, like, let's just say you're breaking down a pig, it's a lot of just um, primal cuts, you know? So it's like you take the shoulder off, you know, you take the ham off, and then um, you, don't, you don't do individual chops and stuff. You just kind of take the whole chop with the rib and the belly. You kind of just take those chunks off. And then, and then and in the household, you kind of break it down any way you want, you know? Um, so, like, for us, it was like, oh, we would break the shoulder down and use that meat to make sausage out of, you know, and, and, you know, put it through the grinder and make sausage, or we would break the shoulder down into, um, into kind of, uh, like steak size. And, you know, we, we just grill that, you know? So again, it's definitely, um, like, it's really interesting because like the way that, um, Hmong families break down, uh, like whole, whole animals, it's, 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 uh, just the sense of necessity. Right. So when I work with my butcher friends and they're like, yep, like we, you know, like we, we take the pig, we get it processed and we let it hang for, you know, a few days. So then the meat does, you know, so the meat tenderizes up. And I, I remember when I first learned this concept, I'm like, why would you waste a few days of hanging the meat? Like we it's, it's like a, you know, it's like literally like a family comes together, we get like a 300 pound pig, a couple, we boom, boom, boom. And then we're done, you know, and it's all wrapped up, packed up and, you know, taken home. And I'm like, what the heck's this whole wait of three days, kind of four days kind of hanging thing. So, so it was really, it was really cool to see both worlds of the way that they would do it in the old country of, you know, in Laos and Thailand. And then the way that they do it, you know, like in, in uh, like some of my buddies who own butcheries, you know? So it's really cool to see that both that concept and actually kind of see how it, it works parallel each other. Cause again, food is all about story, right? So if you see the way that like Hmong um, families, you know, like work with whole animals, it's, it's a story of necessity, you know, it's like for us um, growing up, like every, I don't know, every three weeks, every four weeks, we were out at an Amish farm and my dad was haggling with them 
you know, be like for, for, for one of the pigs and they'll get it and they'll shoot it for us. And then we break it down on their farm, dispose of all the innards that we don't need. And then, but you know, try to save as much as we can. And then we bring it home and literally my, we would drive into our garage Close the garage door really slowly. It looked weird because it would be like a Dexter kind of looking show where we had this plastic <laughs> bag and you were carrying this body thing looking. And, you know, we put it on these makeshift tables my dad had in the garage and we closed the garage door and the neighbors would be driving by. And we lived in a pretty predominant white community. So they were like all driving by and looking at us and we like Side give eye. that weird way like, hey, <laughs> as the garage door closes and there's something wrapped in plastic. And then we just break it down and then we wrap it everything up and then we kind of package it up. And so... Yeah, I mean, it's it's really cool to see the, both the process of that way and then seeing, you know, breaking down animals with my buddy who owns a butcher shop, you know, and how they do it in different cuts for different consumers. You know, you mentioned your dad a couple of times, and uh, he sounds like he was a pretty handy guy. He had like a, a, a philosophy or a nickname or something, I think, for him, right? Um, was oh. it like... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we always, uh, like, we, so when, so, like, when we first came to America... Uh, they, there were, there were, uh, kind of three heroes of ours. One, like, well, kind of four, basically we had, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, in Terminator, like he was a hero of ours. Uh, the second one was, uh, Sylvester Stallone, you know, Rambo, you know, just that. And then we had, um, uh, we had Chuck Norris, Walker, Texas Ranger. And then the fourth one was MacGyver. Like we would watch those shows all the time. And, 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 and we would just love the fact, my dad would love the fact that MacGyver could take, I, I don't know, if, like, I don't know, when I said that to a bunch of young people, they're like, who's MacGyver? I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and, and so, so we would, so we just kept joking that my, every time my dad would tinker with stuff, uh, we just kind of said, hey, like, what's dad doing? My mom would be like, oh, he's MacGyvering outside, you know, it became a <laughs> verb, right? And then we jokingly just, as I got older, we just called it MacGyvering, you know? Like when you get into a situation and you don't know how to make it through, like you will the powers of all the ancestors. And we got, like, I always tell my boys, like, we got a mung guy with this situation, man. You know, and, um, you know, for the first three years, uh, we, we, we were, we were a pop-up. So we traveled around from different kitchen, different kitchen. And when we, when we would come to a kitchen where it's like, oh, by the way, our walk-in broke today. So we have to figure like how to put, you know, cool stuff down for a pop-up tonight and i'm like okay boys like let's mungiver this like you know like do we need to go get ice do we need to get a yeti like what do we need to get and right so yeah my, my father's always been uh really good with his hands like you know like you put him in a situation where i mean i, I remember what he would do is he would take small engines and he would break them down and re put them back together because wow. his, his philosophy is if i could touch it with my hand i can feel it and i can know what's going on I, I i i can work the problem and that was um that was his thing. You know, it's um, every time, I mean, even until today, like I'm 35, but every time I have a car issue, I have, I have some kind of issue with some kind of mechanical stuff. I'll bring it over to him and I mean, he'll, he'll do the dad thing where he just kind of stands there with Hannah's hip and looks at it first, you know, then he walks up slowly and then he just works the problem. And so he's still, yeah, he's, you know, we jokingly say he's still among guys, the situations. Well, that is perfect for the restaurant industry because as you know, there's always something in the restaurant that needs fixing and, you can't call help or someone in every time to fix it. So oftentimes you do it yourself and that's yeah. a good skill to have. Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what he said. He's just like, Oh, when you guys get your brick and mortar ready, uh, I'm going to come around and fix things up. And I'm like, oh, okay, dad, like he's retired now. So it's like, Oh, sure, perfect. Come hang out and fix things up. Yeah. So. You'll enjoy that. My <laughs> yeah. grandfather, you know, I see a lot of similarities my grandfather yeah. was the same way. Very handy. He came to my dad's restaurant and was there yeah. all the time fixing yeah. stuff. <laughs> 
it's like who's the old dude he's like leave him alone he's <laughs> in the toilet you know yeah. what's funny is i would call him grandpa and then all the help called him grandpa yeah. he wasn't yeah. he wasn't my dad's dad he was grandpa to yeah. everybody so yeah, it's funny awesome. you mentioned uh you can remember coming to america that must have been quite an experience how did that uh influence yeah. you or affect you mm-hmm. so we were um so we were in this uh, in the refugee camp. V9 is the name of the refugee camp, which V9 is also the name of our uh, upcoming brick and mortar that we're building out. So uh, I tell people that this uh, brick and mortar that we're building out it's a uh, um, it's it's a love letter to my mom and dad. You know, I mean this this whole restaurant is is an homage to them. And so the, the refugee camp was called V9. My parents uh, when they came in there in 77 they met in 78 they were married right they got married in 78 um and then by 80 84 i was born in 88 we left so they were in the camp for 10 years and then the camp itself shut down in 92 so from 75 to 92 it hosted about 65,000 people in that refugee camp and out of those 65,000 um uh, 90% of them were Hmong, and all those 90% um, Hmong refugees in that in Vinai in Thailand, there uh, majority that ended up in the Midwest. It's, it's all spread through Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota area. Right. So yeah, uh, yeah. And so I remember we came when I was like four or five. I started kindergarten right away. Didn't know much about English. I didn't know English that much. So I would. I remember the first few days was just learning how to say yes, no, and bathroom, you know, and stuff like that. And so yeah. Uh-huh. What was Vinai like? It was it when you when nowadays when you hear refugee camp, you think mm-hmm. of these um, terrible places. Um, mm-hmm. Was it rough then, or was it more of a city? How did it how did it work? How did it flow back so, then? So yeah, man. Like if you have a if you have a, a like quote unquote camp, if we you call it a camp, right? If you have a camp full of let's just say fifty thousand people, that that's a city, right? You know, like um, you know when I when I think about uh, you know so, you know like I went to school at UW Lacrosse, you know. Uh, the, the population UW, uh, the population of lacrosse is like 50,000. I'm like, you know, like, mm. and that's a pretty big, you know, decent sized town city, you know? And so like, when you think about that, it's like, man, it, I mean, it, it was a full on city. There was nine sections. The, the, the camp itself was broken up to nine different sections. Um, just, you know, just, for, just for coordinating, you know, and there was uh, in the center of this village or in the center of the camp. Uh, every day rations were given out. So you would have to come in with your uh, number or which uh, would tell um, the, you know, the, the ration people, how many rations you get. Cause that would tell them how many kids you have. So my my dad told me every day you would just have to go in the center of the city to get your rations and stuff for the, for, you know um, yeah. I mean, I remember, I mean, I have bits and pieces of memory as a kid there where it's just like, you're just, I was just a kid with just wearing a t-shirt running around doing whatever you know um some parts of it was hard because it wasn't like we had like it was like huts you know made out of you know sticks and bamboos and uh when it rained the floor turned into mud you know kind of deal um and when it rained you kind of just you know found your own little shelter area um but it it was life for 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 some people it was just literally um but it was better than where they were before Mm-hmm. And that that's like the crazy thing to think mm-hmm. where like, as I see some of these old pictures of, of, of Vinay, I'm like, man, this was better. This was like 10 times, a hundred times better. Than, Safety. Yeah. Yeah. You'd yeah. be surprised how much you would just rather have something over your top where you can sleep under and just not be worried about, Oh, like, you know, do we have this kind of wall over here or do we put this kind of painting over here? Like, you right. know, where it's just like, this is safe. 
nobody's trying to kill us. You know, we're safe and we, we, we have food. We, we, you know, we, we're, we're surviving. And yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. You, you do lose track of that unless you really take a step back and look at it. Just how, how fortunate we really should be every day for what we have. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, those types of things that, so your, your mom and dad, I, I know they're a huge influence in your life. I can tell that very easily, but, uh, is that where you learned your cooking style from them or did you yeah. pick that up? Yeah. So my, um, so my, so, so in, in, in monk tradition, a lot of times when it comes to like throwing big party or feasts, the men always took care of the protein. So a lot of times they end up being like, you know, outside under a tent, we'll, we'll do like a pit fire and then we'll grill meats, you know? So all the boys end up hanging out with all the other men of the family. And a lot of times it's, you know, breaking down, you know, meats, chopping it up, um, doing, you're working on the proteins. And, and, and for me, it was this incredible time for me to watch like my uncles and my cousins and my dad, and they would gather around this pit fire and, and they would just grill meats on top of it. And, and, and if you were one of the lucky ones, you get to hold one of those tongs. And when I say tongs, I'm talking about those wiry tongs, not the good ones. You know what I'm talking about? Like the <laughs> oh, wire. Right. Oh, no, like, I have what you mean. Almost yep. were like salads, you know what I'm talking yep. about, that are wiry. And they're, yeah. But yeah, and, and, and you would, you know, you use that to flip. Them. And, and if you were one of the lucky ones, they would let you have one. And then you would help flip. And, and that's kind of where I got my start. And so that's why I love cooking over wood fire. Um, I learned a lot of that watching my dad, just the skill of what it takes to cook over wood fire. Um, and then with my, like a lot of the women, they would be inside. Uh, and a lot of the women would work on uh, doing a lot of the side dishes, a lot of the sauces, you know, and different stuff like that. And so, um, so my mom, um, and, and a lot of it too is, um, I'll be very honest, like just like, for example, like they'll sit there and roll like a thousand egg rolls. And while the women do that, they sit there and they just gossip about who she's married who and what boy <laughs> is available and what would match what daughter. And they, they, you know, they talk about all stuff like that. Sure. You know, just and 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 so there was kind of like this division of 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 like chores, I guess, when it comes to, you know, do, doing kind of parties and stuff. So it was there wasn't a right or a wrong or a better than or not, you know, you know, there was no value. In it. it was just that's what they did. And. Yeah. So uh, I learned a you know a little bit of both from each side you know like a lot of the sauces I learned was watching my mom you know a lot of our hot sauces that we do my mom um, taught uh, like a lot of our proteins the way we do our proteins is watching my dad you know but but now um, you know my dad uh, you know he taught me how to work with coals how to work with wood fire how to let it burn down um, and my favorite smell is that smell of like wood fire grill you know where it's like the mix of like meats and fat and wood fire and it's all over you like you know and so um so when i come home i, I smell like wood fire a lot of times because we use a wood fire grill for our for our restaurant you know what we do right now and so yeah so I, I love that smell and it's for me it's like a comforting smell and when when i the the funniest part is like when i go out to the store or something and i remember the time i was going out and i was checking out some stuff and i remember the teller lady goes, man, somebody smells like barbecue hot dogs right now. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> like I was, me. yeah, so I was kind of looking around and I was like, uh, maybe I'll go to the self-check now, you know? <laughs> Chef, I'm a super fan of the flavors and textures that come out of Asian countries, you know, Japanese, Thai, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, whatever. I, I love it all. But all too often, once you get out of uh, larger cities and into some of the smaller towns across the country, you find that restaurants feel like they have to 
tame their menu a little bit or, or, or back off some of the things that they maybe cook at home or what they would normally like to cook in order to appeal to a, an American palate? I'm sure a lot of people aren't familiar with Hmong cuisine, but nowadays in 2020, people are, are very receptive and open to, to new things. Is your menu reflective of more traditional Hmong dishes, or is it modified somehow in its uh, presentation? Mm -hmm. Definitely. We get this question a lot. And so what I tell people is this. Um, you know, I, I heard a great quote once that said, before you take a fence down, ask yourself why it was put there in the first place. And the way that I view that uh, that quote is, man, like before you start make before I make judgment, before I think about these things, I have to trace back, like, how did that get there? And the reason why, like, for example, we're just going to take Twin Cities, you know, um, uh, we'll take St. Paul. Down in St. Paul, there's uh, this uh, neighborhood called Frogtown, which University Ave runs right through it. And if you follow University Ave, it goes right to the, literally goes straight right to the uh, state capitol. On University Ave, sometimes it's called Little Ming Kong, too, where also what it is, is it's a lot of Southeast Asian restaurants that are there. Right, right on, uh, on University Ave. Now, when, when you get there, a lot of the restaurants have the word Thai behind it, the word Chinese or China, or some, or the word um, um, like uh, Vietnamese, you know? Well, a lot of those restaurants are owned by Hmong operators. But when they first came to America and they first were able to set up restaurants, if you say, hey, come grab Hmong food, most people won't know what that is. Most, you know, Midwest white dude won't know what that is. Mm -hmm. But if you say, hey, we have Thai food or this is a Thai restaurant. Well, right away, you're like, oh, Pad Thai. Oh, you know, like this kind of dumpling, this kind of whatever. Or if you just say we're pan or we're, we're just an Asian restaurant, then, then it, it, for them at that point, it was about markability. Like and then you would have the people come in. They're like, oh, this is too spicy. So then they would switch it because. At then, it wasn't about like artistic integrity. It was about how do we survive? How do we make it? So eventually, the flavors twisted a little bit or the flavors changed to meet the palates of the majority of the demand. And I get it. I get it that in the you know, late, 90, or sorry, late 80s, early 90s, that's what Hmong operators had to do. And I get that. I respect that. I respect the hustle for that. I, mean, I have nothing against that. I think that I am very blessed to be in a new age of cooking where people use that word authenticity a lot, where, where, where people want to say, I'm eating this, but is this authentically made this way? Um, sometimes I feel like that word, nobody knows how to define it. Define authenticity. Well, you know, it's authentic. Well, what does that mean? It means authentic, you know? So I feel like the word authentic itself is hard to define. It's and kind of the inauthentic. Way, yeah, yeah, right? So I always say that authentic, literally, I, I look at it as a closed and open hand situation. We close by means that we keep the things that make us Hmong. Open hand because we know that there's going to be change, that this is a whole, it's a progress, it's a process. So the food we do, we tell people that it's Hmong food. Why? Because it's made by Hmong people. And if you, and the reason that the I use different techniques that I learned working in Italian restaurants, working in French restaurants, you know, I use some of that technique. But if you look at the base of a lot of Southeast Asian food, it comes from French techniques, right? With French colonization of, you know, Southeast Asia. So like, so there's a lot of that French technique that's already kind of ingrained in there. So uh, I tell people that we make Hmong food uh, the way that we think that monk food should be made. Like, I'm not going to tone down like a heat level on somebody when they're like, 
well, I want it at a four. That's awesome. But your four could be someone's five yeah. or, you know, so I'm like, we're doing this the way that we want to eat it. Like, you know, I worked with a great chef, you know, I, uh, he always said, he always told us like, make it the way that you're, that you want to eat it. And so like, we just stick to that. And nice. so, uh, for example, like our, the monk sausage we make, it's a recipe that I, my father taught me as a kid growing up and we stick to it, you know, um, uh, the, the sauces, the hot sauces that we make, like it's from what my mom taught me, you know, um, uh, I, you know, what's really interesting, again, I'm, I'm very blessed to be cooking in this um, day and age where people want the funk, you know, they like, they, they like the sour, mm -hmm. they like the funky, they like the, they like the fermented, you know, and the stranger, the better, you know, because, because, yeah. because, you know, all those like millennial hipster kids, they want that they want the like, oh, yeah, have you used this stuff before, you know, and so we're mm -hmm. very blessed in that. Um, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. 20 years ago, people wanted their fried rice. And if you put pork in it, ooh, that's that's very exotic. You know, um, they wanted their pad thai. And it's like, what's tamarind, you know? So, I mean, I'm very blessed to be in the situation I'm in um, that we can actually tell a story with the food that we make. And a lot of times, it's all about verbiage. You know, so in college, I majored in communication. So I've really learned it's about verbiage. You know, like we can call this whatever, but at the end of the day, it's a fried chicken. So if we say, you know, we say fried chicken. If we, we can word it any way we want, but as long as we put in the description fried chicken, they're like, oh, it's fried chicken, you know, and then it connects. So I really, again, like I said, food is a universal language. Mm -hmm. we, I'm, you, I want to use this universal language to speak to people that probably don't know our story, but it draws them in and brings them in to understand our story deeper. Wow. Yeah, so yeah, cool. it's like all these, the watered down versions back in you know 20 30 years ago really paved the way it for, did, i man. hadn't thought of, i hadn't thought about it you know it's like they had to hustle bro like they had yeah. to hustle to yeah. make it like so what did they do yeah they had to do their sweet and sour chicken yeah they had to do their general sales whatever you know they had to do mm -hmm. this why because at that time that's what kept their business going but yeah. these are the pioneers who who gave up on their artistic vision if you want to call it that and so that they're so that young guys like me can kind of track and like pick up where they, where they trailed for us. Right. And so I, I appreciate it, man. And I honor that too. Like I, I respect that. And, you know, I don't look at that with scoff. Like, I can't believe you guys, you know, did this to our culture, blah, blah, blah. Because it's like, what were they supposed to do? Like, if you look at any generation, usually the first generation is, is the hardest. You know I mean? Like you think of, uh, I, you know, I did the research where the, uh, you know, here in the twin cities, like in the mid uh, in Minnesota, when the first Norwegian Swiss people came, you know, in 1875, were the first, they had a heck of a, a winter up here, you know, and it was hard and they struggled to get through. But, but the next generation, it was a little easier. It was a little easier. And for me, it's about, you know, respecting some of the uh, ones that have gone before us. Wow. There, yeah. Just a quick uh question on on your restaurant when you designed your restaurant i'm going to go off the, the food topic a little bit but when mm -hmm. you designed your restaurant and you put in a wood fire grill mm -hmm. what were some considerations that you needed to have or to make in order to accommodate a wood fire grill because at the end of the day in, in other restaurants you shut it down the the hood still run but wood fire is a little different you've got those coals that are going to simmer for mm -hmm. some time and 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 working that line as you said your dad taught you the hot spots and kind of how to move the coals and work them. That's an art form in itself. That's not as easy as people think it is. So some considerations when you thought through, how am I going to do wood fired in my restaurant? 
Yeah, I think it's, it's about having a really good SOP, you know, uh, standard operating procedure. Like, what does cleanup look like? You know, what does startup look like? What time do we start it? You know, uh, I mean, it's just as simple as like um, uh, measuring the amount of wood we're going to put in there. You know, uh, we have a really cool wood dealer we work with and, you know, they have this Minnesota uh, oak uh, and it's kiln dry. So just like, you know, working with that, knowing like, hey, how many, how big is the wood that we, we have coming in? So right now we have kind of like a smaller wood fire grill we have out at the at our um, food trailer where we're, we're running our takeout program from right now. And uh, our, our guy, Miguel on there, man, he's killing it. Like he's, he's like one of those, he's a younger dude and he just takes that wood fire grilling to, it's like an art form for him. Like he's, it's kind of his baby, you know? Um, and, and, and he, I mean, he, Miguel's killing it on there. And it's so cool to watch such a young guy to have such a passion for like doing it right. You know, like just even like making sure that our proteins are cooked correctly on that grill, making sure the height is good. Like, like, you know, every morning he comes in, he makes sure it's clean, right. And so, so it's watching guys like him. It makes me go, man, I want like three more guys like him, you know, it's because um, with Woodfire Grill, like you really have to know, you really have to know. So, so that, and then I think that for us, like having a really good cleanup, like a really good cleaning procedure. Like, so that's the one thing like I run through with the guys a lot, like, Hey, like just wiping things down, making sure that thing doesn't get cooked on there too much. You know, um, it's just the simplest thing. It's like the dumbest thing of like making sure the grates are washed every night, you know, where some nights you're like, yeah, you know, we'll get it tomorrow. And you're just like, oh, and part of you is like, oh, I'm dying inside. <laughs> Always regret it. Yeah, yeah every, I know. Every I, night. I know. So things like that. So really having a good SOP, uh, I think, is one of the things. Um, and then, I mean, you know, just, I mean, hood systems, you know, like that's that's like the big money right there is the hood system. Uh, having a good cleaning service like these are you know this is stuff that i've learned from talking with friends who have wood fire grills in their restaurants you know just they spend a lot on cleaning you know hood cleaning systems and stuff like that um and i think it's just about cleanup too like for me one of the most satisfying it's weird but one of the most satisfying thing for me is like just like uh just cleaning up that wood fire pit with all the coals and you clean it like you know like you brush everything off and it's just like brand new and you start and you start a brand new fire by like just, you know, uh, making like a little log cabin with a small, you know, and, and starting. And that to me is like the most relaxing thing to do. Get in there and start the grill early yeah. and yeah. get it going good and hot. Right. Yep. yep. So, so the hood system is just a typical hood system. Is it just standard filters like you'd use in any other system? Uh, no, it's a special one. Used for, uh -huh. cause, so because uh, it, it has a different system, a different filter for soot, you know, for um and for uh, um, for ash, smoke, all that stuff. So it's all, and that's where, man, that's man, hood systems, man. I could go on days about how expensive <laughs> things are. Um, yeah, it's like, hey, do you want to buy a new car or do you want to get a hood system? Um, uh, so yeah, that and that's, and then the cleaning services. So uh, yes. having uh, uh, monthly, bi-monthly, depending on how much you use. Uh, having that cleaning system uh, come in and cleaning it out, making sure that nothing gets, you know, caught up on fire. I mean, that's, yeah. So that's, that's just great advice for anybody listening that has a, that has a hood system of any sort in any restaurant, keep that clean. That, that pays off big time. Just that little bit all the time, consistently keeping that hood clean, big, big deal. 
Yeah, I mean, I always, I tell my boys, I'm like, do you guys know how much, like, do you guys know how you show me you love me? When I come in and I don't have to say it, I look up and the hoods are all clean. And you're just like, <laughs> they really love me? Like, they really do. Like, I didn't have to say, and sometimes I feel like a parent. I'm just like, well, guys, you know, like, it's been a week. Maybe we should, you know, you know. So, need a so chore tonight. wheel yeah. here? Yeah, 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 we got a chore wheel. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's. Isn't that like a rite of passage in the kitchen as well? Like you first start out and you get the dishwasher, they do it, then you graduate out of that, right? You're like, yeah. yes, I don't have to do the hoods anymore. Yeah, we don't have a dishwasher, so like all our cooks, we wash dishes. So, so I love doing that to our cooks because we don't, and we are the dishwashers. So it's like you only wash as much of the mess as you make. So it gets uh, people to be super creative, like uh, how, like you know, just like you know, take a board out for a little like whatever, and then throw the board away. It's like, no, dude, you're gonna have to wash that board. So it's like, huh. How do I jimmy rig all the, like, how do I life hack all these situations? So it's like less washing. And it's incredible when the dishwashers are the cooks too, because then you really see how resourceful they are. Yeah, it's yeah, incredible. real ingenuity. Oh, yeah. well, if you got a stack of bowls, you're going to go through that whole stack. Whereas if you got to wash them, you're going to figure out ways to be oh, a little neater when you're cooking, oh, right? Oh, yeah. It, you want to talk about having dudes like working, like put them in small quarters and then have them say, hey, by the way, you wash your own dishes man, like we get real creative, like, oh, okay. So, you know, like, I like that. So nobody pulls out a board just to cut like two things of onions and then just throw the board in the dish pit because it's like, yeah, who do you think goes in the dish pit? That's you, dude. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. very good. I like it. Yeah. Well, speaking of dishes or maybe uh, lack thereof, uh, I'm very intrigued with this. Uh, correct me on the pronunciation. Uh, Kamayan. Yep. Yep. Kamayan feast. Yep. Uh, that. Just looks outstanding. And for yeah. for those people who who don't know what that is, would you mind just describing what that what yeah. that looks like? Yeah. So the name derives from uh, a Filipino. It's a traditional Filipino feast. And when we first started doing our pop ups, we teamed up with a Filipino group uh, pop up group called Lola Rosa. And we and and the in the Hmong world, we kind of have a feast like that too. But the the translation of the word literally translates to the harvest feast which doesn't sound as cool as kamayan so we're like yeah kamayan sounds a lot better so i, I talked to my buddies and i'm like hey man mike can i can i just steal that word we're gonna use that for uh our, our feast uh and he's like yeah sure go ahead man and so the word kamayan actually kamay breaks down to what it means is uh with your hands or eating with your hands so literally uh depending on if we're doing this in people's homes or on a big platform or if we're doing this um on a smaller scale we just line everything up with banana leaves and then we put all the food in the middle and it's think of it as a shrimp boil instead of newspaper mm -hmm. you use banana leaves and instead of shrimp and sausage and corn it's like everything you know it's roasted root so we do it more of like the midwest way so it's a lot of roasted root vegetables um we do whole snappers whole bronzinis whatever whole fish we can get our hands on uh you know we do um you know ribeye steaks we do pork chops we do uh, you know, different cuts of meats of whatever. I mean, one time we even did like grilled, grilled octopus and we just put it all out and then you just throw in all the, your, you know, all of your, like we put in sticky rice, we do different kinds of noodles and then you just put in uh, different kinds of pickles and fermented veggies and you literally lay it out in the middle. Everybody rolls up their sleeve and then you grab a beer and then you just eat and everyone just pulls in and they just eat. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's truly, truly a feast. And I tell people that, uh, a Kamayan feast, you have to have more than, I mean, if you have four people, sure, whatever. But man, it's one of those like showstoppers, you 25 people, you just fill it wow. all up. 
And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun and it's great to get to know people. It's fun to watch strangers eat like that because by at the end of the night, like they become friends. Cause it's like, Hey man, if you want the shrimp and it's all the way on the other side, you're going to have to ask a weirdo to pick it up and send it <laughs> over to you. you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a very, a lot of people always be like, Oh yeah, it's like communal. And I'm like, yeah, we just call that dinner. You know, we didn't call it communal dinner. It's just dinner. And, just and it dinner. really, it really breaks a lot of um, Midwest stereotypes, you know, I'm talking about where it's like, this is my mm. food. I don't want anybody to touch it. And it's like, oh, sorry, <laughs> yeah. dude. Like you knew where you're getting into. I mean, it's it's super fun, and it's and it's one of those things where literally when we put them when we put up these uh, these Kamayan feasts, like it goes on for three hours or so, three plus hours, and you just nibble. So I tell people do it in waves. Like maybe start on a section and then like rest a little bit and then nibble some more and then nibble some more, and it's super fun. Yeah, sounds like a really good time. Man, that sounds like I would like to substitute that for like a christmas or thanksgiving day. i mean hey man there we go hey, you guys are you guys are ready let me know i'll come do one for the company for you guys you know oh let me know you guys oh, yeah. have all the fun gadgets so it's gonna yeah. be easy like i'm all serious right. i'm serious we let gotta me know. put this together yeah um, we are doing this yeah uh talk to your people and uh, let me know I, l- I love that side of the state anyways so i'll come by and you guys have all the fun gadgets and we can throw we can throw a big combined piece for you guys Heck wow yeah. yeah i'm in this is awesome Wow. We'll make it happen. Justin, what a good day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's just got a whole uh, lot better. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Monk Cuisine is still at a very, like, you know, fetus stage. I'll be very honest. Right. You know, I, I tell people that Monk food isn't a type uh, of food, but it's a philosophy of food. It's a way of thinking about food. Um, one of the things I always say is that if you want to know our people, know our food. Because our story is actually interwoven into our food. Because our food actually tells a story of where we've been. So the way that we use food right now, me as this monk kid who's cooking here, I'm telling the story of us here. So we use a lot of like rutabagas, carrots, you know, turnips. We use a lot of root vegetables because here in the north, man, like root vegetables are kind of like our, our, our world. And, uh, and we do use like mung mustard greens and stuff like that. But that's like my mom saving seeds every year and she grows it every year. And she ferments it and makes fermented mustard green for us every year. You know, like Aww. that tells the story of our people and that's what we do. And that's what Hmong food really is about. It's telling the story of your people. And then every generation, a group of us gets to write in that story. And so it's so cool. If you trace the way that we eat, you actually trace our history. Our, our, we didn't have, our people didn't have a written language until the 1950s where the missionaries came and actually gave us a written language. So we, there's no way of recording. But the best way that we, the best way that we recorded our history, history growing up, my dad would tell me is stories that one generation tells a story of their generation to the next generation. And, and woven into those stories are recipes and dishes. And that's how we've been doing it. And I, I still think that today among people, that's what we're doing. And so a lot of times, that's why, um, you know, in uh, Eastern uh, Wisconsin there, it's hard to have that story when you don't have a platform to have that voice. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, like mm-hmm. if, because everyone expects, oh, you're an Asian restaurant, so you should have pad thai, you should have egg rolls, you should have this and that. And, and then you're like, I guess that's what we should have because people aren't going to come here. But then we can do what we can do. Like, for example, growing up, one of our favorite things to do is after church is stop at KFC and get a bucket of fried chicken and eat it with sticky rice and hot sauce. So one of our biggest dish that we can't get rid of is our fried, uh, uh, fried chicken dish we do. But we, we fry it not with like the traditional kernel way or whatever, Popeye's way. We use uh, cornstarch, um, tapioca starch, 
and um, um, and rice flour. And that's that's our batter. And since our food trailer that we're working out of is by a uh, by a cidery, a brewery cidery, we use their cider as kind of like a, the dredge to make our dredge. And that extra mm. sugar creates a really beautiful caramelized coating on it, you know? And so, oh. so eating fried chicken and, and the best thing when you eat fried chicken and sticky rice is all those bits that fall off, all those fried chicken bits. You take the sticky rice, like mem- remember when you were growing up that claw game with, you know, with, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like you take that and you dip into the, all the little bits of sticky rice and then you get that hot sauce in there and you create a perfect bite. That to me mm. is monk food. So when I talk about monk food like that to, to, to monk kids, like they're all like, oh my gosh, like that's what we do. And so we try to create that by taking that dish and that meal. And then when people come eat, people who are very shallow minded will be like, oh, yeah, it's, fried, it's, it's fried chicken. What's, what's the big deal? But when the Hmong people, when the Hmong kids eat it, they, they go back to their childhood. They're like, yeah, this is Sunday afternoon after church. We're eating fried chicken with sticky rice, you know. And so we want to bring that to, to, our, to all our diners because it's not really about the food. It's about the people. So we've had people write up to us and said, that is the best comfort food we have. You know, like I, I'll eat sticky rice with anything. Or my mom's hot sauce that she makes for us every year, she makes about 75 gallons for us. Whoa. Like, it's like a killer up here. You know, she, my, her, her and my dad, they, make, they take two days and they, two or three days and they make it for us. Wow. And so it, so Hmong food isn't necessarily about a certain product or produce. It's actually, it's actually about creating that atmosphere of love and care. And bringing people together and which a lot of that too i see that resonate in um eastern european food you know like if, if you if you think about a lot of like like i think of like you know uh russian cooking you know like like some of those rush old russian grandmas who the way they cook like the food is out of very simple ingredients but it's very comforting you know i think of uh greek food the same thing you know because it, it's this thing of like we don't have a lot but when we take what we have together we create an atmosphere where people come together and say, for this moment, for the next 30 minutes, for the next 40 minutes, we forget our troubles and we're here as one. And so I, I really think that's the soul of Hmong food. And that's so awesome. that's what's really cool about being Hmong. You could put us anywhere in the world. We'll be, we, it's written in our DNA. We will want to create that atmosphere. So, yeah, yeah so I'm, that's why I tell people like the word Hmong literally translates to free or the free people. We're not confined to boundaries of, you know, of land, boundaries of ideas. Like we can think outside of the box, and that's what our people have done for generations. So, uh, I, I think, I think I've just been looking for the wrong thing. You know, I've been looking for this like brick and mortar traditional mm-hmm. restaurant. You know, and it's just more of a mentality. It, I guess, oh, it that is. I've been, I've been looking for as, for as far <laughs> as like experiencing Hmong yep. food. So that's so like exceptionally enlightening. Like one of the things that I, I tell people is my uncles, when they, um, <clears throat> when we were growing up, when they would go hunting and they get a deer or something, they were literally the, the first, the best cuts, the first part of the deer that they break down, they would wrap it up and then they would actually take that and send it out to, to some of the other families. Like you don't give people the leftovers, you give them the best cuts first. Hmm. And that's what I saw my parents are like, we would go and when we, when, you know, the day where we butcher a whole pig, my, my dad would actually, I remember I was like 16, I just learned how to drive. And I had a bunch of, un, uh, we, we lived in a small town, Port Edwards, and my dad would literally, you know, cut out a few of the smaller chunk, uh, some of the best cuts of the meat, wrap it up, put it in a little plastic, like a, 
uh, Cubs or festival bag, I remember. And, and he would tell me, since I, I turned 16, I wanted to drive. So he'd be like, hey, send this to grandma. Send this to uncle so-and-so. And those were the first cuts that we would send out. And that's when I, to me, that was so much value. My father taught me that when you get something, you give people the best first. You don't give them like, oh, yeah, there's the trotters or here are the ears. No, you give them the best cuts first, the prime cuts. And I think that that's one of the things I love about being Hmong is that when you get something, you want to share with people, but you want to share the best. So if we're talking about bourbon, like you're, you're getting the name brand stuff for them, you know, you're making sure they get first pour. You know, if we're talking about beers, like they're the ones that get the first, you know, pint. And that's what I love about being Hmong. And it's just like we get to share the best with you guys first. And then whatever's left over, we'll, we'll take that. But you, we get to share. I mean, in Hmong tradition, when you, when you eat at the house, when you have guests come in, you literally let your guests eat first. And then whatever's left over from the guests, then the host will come. And while they clean up, they'll eat the rest. That's how we have done it traditionally for thousands and thousands of years. Well, I, it's a practice that I guess it works because it goes around and it yep. comes back to you. Exactly. So. And you never keep count. Like, oh, hey, I was, remember I was like three times. I came to your house and you did that for me. Now I'm going to try to pay you back. <laughs> and that's one of my dad, the thing my dad tells me. He's like, we never keep count of, of loving each other because like love has no boundary in that count. You know, yeah. and so I think that because we were a people group that were so – uh, we didn't have a land of our own, an anthem of our own, a city or a town of our own. We had each other, and that's how you love each other. And for us, for me, I just don't want people to look from the outside. I actually want to bring them in. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what economic background they have, or I don't care what religious background. I don't care what, I don't know, political views they have. I want them to bring them in. I don't give a turd who you voted for and whatever. Like At the end of the day, I'm, I want to feed you, man. I don't care if you wrote red or blue or green or whatever. Like at the end of the day, I, I just want to feed you. And that that's, I learned that from my mom and dad and that's all them. That's their legacy. That's their story. And I just get to reflect that. So it's beautiful. That is. I've been to a, a few Hmong parties here in, in yeah. my area. And uh, first of all, it's quite a party, yeah. but you know, all these things you were just saying, I'm remembering when I was at that party and it's all true. That's mm -hmm. exactly how it is. And it's very giving and they're all, Everyone was very social, and um, the host came over, and he welcomed us, and, and it was just – it was a different feeling, and I didn't know really how to kind of put it together. And, and some of the things you were saying there, I'm like, yeah, I remember that part. And it, it's really cool. It's a great uh, culture. And I know, like, in this area, uh, Sheboygan, large Hmong population, and um, you know when a Hmong family is having a party. Everybody's yeah, there. Everybody, yeah. It is a huge, yeah. huge event, and they all um, – have that great respect for for elders and older yeah. people and they talk about their uncles and even they're not blood uncles but any older yep. males and uncle like in their culture the family right and mm -hmm. they're just all about that that family get together and, and enjoying each other and their company and respect and all the good things really are that's cool Unfortunately, uh, it is time to wrap things up for today. Thank you, Chef, for a really great show. You're, you're a great pleasure to talk to, very informative, and um, just a really good show. As Justin said, I think we could talk here for quite a bit more time, but uh, we do have to wrap things up for the day, so thank you. Uh, we look forward to your restaurant, uh, Vinai, right? Vinai? Uh, yes, sir. Opening uh, soon. I'm sure it'll be amazing. Can't wait to uh, get up to Minneapolis to, to give it a try. And uh, for our listeners today, I hope you enjoyed the show and hearing about uh, Yi's story. I think listening to him 
uh, just makes me feel good and, and hungry, I guess, right? But uh, just good to hear someone talk about family and culture and the past and how that is so important to him and how he remembers that and what he does every day. So again, thank you, Chef, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Anything, uh, Chef, in your life uh, growing up or, or, you know, mentors that you've had? We always like a kind of a restaurant quote. You've given us some really good ones already, but um, anything else that inspires you or, or motivates you, a quote that you've had from someone in your past? Uh, again, I always go back to my dad. Uh, I've, I've learned so much from him. You know, when, when I was a kid growing up, you always just think your dad is dorky. <laughs> so you're just like, ugh, dad, stop. You know, like <laughs> the neighbors are watching or whatever. And then when you get to college, <clears throat> high school, you're just like, oh, my dad's weird, you know, whatever. And then it wasn't until after post-college where I just really found out, like, the kind of man he was. Um, <clears throat> I remember my father would say this to us. Is it usually... Usually it's like when my, my brother and I got in a fight because over like stupid stuff like toys or whatever. And we were kids. And um, my dad would say, um, when you say this is mine, you actually have less. But when you say this is ours, you have more. And in, mm. in the world we live in, everybody's in the mind mentality. Like this is mine. This is mine. But when you say this is ours, you have more. And it, it, it becomes this ethos of the way that we do food. The way that we do our food for our restaurant is not that like, oh, this is my dish or this is my meal. This is ours because you actually have more when you say this is ours and everybody gets to share in that. And so that's been just a big thing, uh, a kind of a kind of an anthem in the back of my head, the way that we think about um, our ethos of how we want to do food and how we want to do our restaurant is that this isn't my dish. This isn't, isn't my restaurant. It's ours. It's all of ours. And so it's just been super cool uh, to be able to, to, to see that. And, you know, that really showed for us, especially um, in February when we had a, a Kickstarter to raise some funds for the for the restaurant, for the brick and mortar. And in a month, uh, in a month, we raised $100,000. And so it really, the community came. They, they, they all came out and they said, we want to be a part of this. So, yeah. This is ours. This is yeah. ours, right? Yeah. Very great. Uh, that's a neat way to look at things. I, I Another really good quote I'll remember. So. Thank you for that. And thank you for everything again today, Chef. Really appreciate it. Justin, anything from you? Closing thoughts? Well, yeah. I would just like to remind everyone, if you enjoyed what we do here today, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And while you're at it, go ahead and share that with your friends. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And on that note, everyone, if there's anything that you do want to hear from us, topic uh, suggestions or anything, please reach out to us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And that's it for today, everyone. And as always, I like to leave you with my own little thought of don't worry about anyone else. Just do what you do best and no one's going to beat you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Till next time. Take care.